Chelsea and I were privileged last week to worship with our friends at uh, Mercy Presbyterian Church in Morgantown, but uh, really glad to be back here uh, among friends. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 13. We're going to go down through verse 16 today. We're just picking up where we left off, and uh, for some of you it might be a relief since we did church discipline on Mother's Day and divorce uh, the last time I spoke. This might be a welcome relief. From uh, It's a little bit less intense on the face of it anyway. So anyhow, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. This week, as some of you may notice, the United States Justice Department indicted nine FIFA officials on corruption charges. Now, if you're unfamiliar with FIFA, it's the international governing body of what we call soccer, but the rest of the world rightly calls football or football, because you play it with your feet. It just makes a lot of sense. Now, FIFA is responsible for organizing the sport's major international tournaments, such as the World Cup. You've probably heard of that one. And also ensuring the integrity of the game. Yet, despite the group's noble purposes, its fraudulence is described by U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch as rampant and systemic. While there are many details yet to be exposed, FIFA's corruption seems clear. Which puts the the sponsors of the World Cup in a precarious position. I mean, typically when this type of wrongdoing occurs, sponsors quickly flee because they want to avoid being associated with something negatively. They want to protect their brand. I mean, think Tiger Woods a few Thanksgivings ago. However, because FIFA is, as Jim Andrews, a senior vice president of IEG says, such a potent asset... Sponsors have been much slower to dissolve their partnership with the group and its infinitely profitable World Cup. In in other words, most companies are only concerned with sponsorships that help them make money. That makes sense to us. And the World Cup is so popular on an international level that the benefits of sponsoring it far outweigh the cost of being negatively associated with FIFA. So we can expect Coke and Visa and McDonald's and Adidas and others to remain faithful to their partnerships. They are, at the end of the day, concerned with the payoff, the furthering of their brand, the growth of their enterprise. You see, this type of cost-benefit analysis, the weighing of pros and cons, it's nothing new, and it's actually at the heart of the disciples' misunderstanding in our text today. You see, they're doing cost-benefit analysis with who can come to Jesus and what they might gain from it. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. The disciples still do not yet understand the economy of God or how one enters the kingdom. And as a result, they will wrongly rebuke those who are bringing children to Jesus, which results in them being rebuked by Jesus. And that's how we're going to frame our discussion this morning around the disciples' rebuke and around Jesus' rebuke. And as we move through the text, we're going to see Jesus' actions and his words work together to teach us that. And this is the the main idea of the text. True disciples enter the kingdom of God by receiving it like little children. True disciples enter the kingdom of God by receiving it like little children. And so our, our one big thing or that one big application I want to help you make to your life this week as you think about this text and as you're with your neighbors and you're talking about it throughout the week is love the weak and be the weak. Love the weak and be the weak. Enter into the kingdom of heaven by receiving it like children. 
Before we get started, though, let's, let's pray together. Father, many of us, uh, we had a hard time getting out of bed this morning, including myself. We would have liked a few extra hours of sleep. Some of us just didn't feel like coming to worship this morning, but we know that you've commanded us to gather together for our good. And Lord, it is good to be together. So we ask that as we've come together now that we might hear well, that we might experience the grace that you offer to us here in the singing of and the proclamation of your word. Bless our time together. Set your spirit on us that we might rightly understand your word, apply it to our lives, and consequently be closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So they're people bringing their children to Jesus. And we ask the question, why? Why are they bringing children to Jesus? Why would they want Jesus to touch them? And the answer is for blessing. Now today this might seem a little bit weird, but in the time of Christ, it's it's not unusual for children to be brought to rabbis for a prayer of blessing. Fathers, elders, rabbis would lay their hands on a child just as the patriarchs before them had done and pray blessings. As we'll eventually see in our passage, Jesus fulfills all the typical components of a Hebrew blessing, which included the the meaningful touch and and a spoken word, but, but not yet. Jesus doesn't bless and pray for these children just yet because as these parents attempt to bring their infants, toddlers, and preteens to Jesus, they run into his self appointed PR people. His uh, self-appointed bodyguards, if you will. They're going to sort out who the riffraff is, who gets close to Jesus and who doesn't. They were bringing their children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. We might ask, why are the disciples scolding these parents? It's because they are, at the end of the day, concerned with the payoff, the furthering of their brand, the growth of their enterprise. You see, just like FIFA's sponsors, the disciples are doing some cost-benefit analysis. They're weighing the pros and cons, and it doesn't make sense for Jesus to waste his time on children. The disciples would determine who Jesus would spend his time on. Children were certainly not worth it. Remember, in this culture, children are not celebrated. They were thought of as auxiliary members of the community. A little child was a, a great example of the least or the last the disciples, they had a leader on their hands. In their minds, a, a military one. Jesus Christ. And they wanted, to, they wanted to leverage him. They wanted his ministry to flourish. That means they only wanted their leader, Jesus, to do things that would pay off. They want him to invest his time only in things that really get something done. Spend time with children? Children who are inconsequential? Children who can't do anything for you? You have to understand that for a man like Jesus to spend his time on children, it's extravagant. It's really generous. It's unexpected because he gets nothing out of it. The disciples are not interested in being generous or receiving little children, but in advancing their own brand. Remember, it's not so long ago in chapter 9, verses 33 through 36, we saw Jesus tell the disciples again that he would be killed. And then the disciples proceeded to argue over which one of them was the greatest. 
And he, he responded to their discussion about who among them was the greatest by, by saying this to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then to drive home his teaching, he grabs a, a kid and puts her in the middle of them and says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not only me, but also him who sent me. Jesus uses the child to say, serve those that you can gain nothing from. He teaches whoever receives and serves the weak and the marginalized testifies to their relationship with God. But the twelve have missed this message. They're not receiving and serving the weak, but standing in their way. They're interested in managing Jesus' ministry only in ways that that pay off. I think this motivation will show itself again in 1035 when after Jesus gives yet another prediction of his death, James and John uh, ask, hey, can, uh, can we sit on your left and on your right when you're in your glory? And they don't mean heavenly glory. They mean after Jesus has overthrown Rome. Been a political leader. They're looking for personal glory by sitting at Jesus' right and his left. They don't understand that Jesus is marching towards his death. And they don't understand why or how the weak enter the kingdom of God. See, the disciples are walking with Jesus, but they're still very far from perfect. Their, their, their faith, they're following with that mustard seed faith we talked about. They're trying to understand. They're, they're walking in his footsteps, but they're, just, they're not getting the whole picture. They're quick to forget, just like us. They quickly forget the mission of God in light of their own pursuits. Their desires for position, popularity, status, and power still lurk in the dark caverns of their hearts. What about you? Are you walking with Jesus, but in your not-yet-perfect state, only concerned with doing things that will pay off? Are you only concerned with people that you perceive as valuable? Scripture teaches us that all men and women and children are inherently valuable because they are made in the image of God. Those people that society deems a waste of life and worthless, Jesus deems worthy of his love. And in fact, he says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, really angry, and said to them, let the children come to me. I think the KJV says, suffer the children to come to me, which is a little weird, but I guess children suffering kind of go together a little bit. But let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Verse 14 is the only passage in all of the Gospels where Jesus is said to be indignant. I think James Edwards is uh, pretty good in his observation when he writes, the object of a person's indignation reveals a great deal about the person. Jesus' displeasure here reveals his compassion and defense of the helpless, vulnerable, and powerless. Jesus is affirming that children are worth his time. Children are worth your time. I think our society has a tendency to value people only for that which they can do or produce. But the Bible teaches us that people are not valuable because of what they do or what they can produce, but because they've been made in the image of God. They're valuable by virtue of being people. The gospel is not for those that can profit God. In fact, those that 
that think they can give something to God can't enter his kingdom. The gospel is for the powerless, the undervalued, and the weak. It's for those that understand they give nothing to God, receive everything from him, and that on the basis of Christ's work alone. Jesus loves children here. He loves the weak. I mean, that song is true, you probably remember it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, right? Jesus loves those that have nothing to offer him, and so should we. There are many ways for you to love children, really practically. You can babysit. My boy's been a terror lately, so there's actually a sign-up sheet in the back for that if you're interested. You can volunteer at the, the Pregnancy Support Center. You could adopt. You could oversee play dates. You can volunteer to teach them. You could help on Wednesday nights. Or, and this one's crazy, you could volunteer to help with VBS, which is only a couple weeks away. You can love children well by simply playing with them or by involving them in biblical discussions and study. Just by teaching them to pray and desire Jesus. Parents, teaching your children the gospel is your responsibility. It's on you. I mean, the church, is, it, we're here to help you in that process, but you are the primary discipler of your children. You teach them about Jesus when you care for them. Your home is a realm of ministry. Steward it well. Don't waste this time you have with them at home. Teach them to love Jesus. And that word about stewardship of the home is not just for parents, friends. Christian, your home is a realm of ministry. Steward it well. Are children welcome in your home? Is there anything in your house that they can touch? Are the powerless welcome in your home? I mean, when was the last time you had someone to dinner that could offer you nothing in return? The disciples are looking for a return on their investment. They don't want Jesus to waste his time on children. But Jesus loves the powerless, the undervalued, and the weak. Church, we have a responsibility to be like those bringing children to Jesus. We ought to evangelize children, to pray with them, lead them, educate them, encourage them, bless them, challenge them. We must, as Dr. Aiken notes, model for them a Christ-intoxicated life. Letting them see that living for Jesus is the natural and normal ebb and flow of life. Let me ask you, is this the kind of life that you are living? Are you drunk on the Spirit, or is your hypocritical life hindering someone from coming to Jesus? Maybe you're hindering someone from coming to Jesus just by virtue of withholding yourself from the fellowship and the service of the church. Children are worthy of your time, worthy of your care. Those that inherit the kingdom of God, the helpless, the weak, the vulnerable, the powerless, are worthy of your time and of your care. Friends, we are to love the weak. Not only that, we're to be the weak. Now, as as I have mentioned, in Jesus' day, and, and I think still in ours, children are often viewed as unimportant and inconsequential auxiliary members of society, and their value is just greatly degenerated. We, we're, we typically undervalue children. With that said, I think I would be remiss if, 
didn't also point out the same issue uh, in a different way of deification of children in our culture, right? We usually are, are prone to undervalue them or overvalue them. Not care about them at all or, or care about them only or as the highest good in our life. I saw a great example of this on ESPN the other day. Uh, they're featuring a story about a mother who had lost her left leg while running the Boston Marathon in 2013. And so after lots of training and, and a prosthetic leg, uh, she eventually finished the last three miles of the race. And when they were interviewing her, one particular quote stuck out to me uh, and kind of made me shake my head. She said this, My ultimate purpose in life is to be my child's mother. My ultimate purpose in life is to be my child's mother. That's idolatry. Idolatry is taking some incomplete joy in this world and building your entire life on it. Anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, and your identity, that's an idol. It's to be repented of. Our hearts are idol factories. They continually take good things like career and love and possessions and even family and make them ultimate things. We worship at their altar and give to them that which only rightly belongs to God. While I I appreciate the deep love this brave woman has for her son, I I couldn't help but think to myself as, as I watched this, you've missed it. Your kid will grow up and disappoint you, cannot save you. Yes, you were made for motherhood, and that's good, but you were made for so much more than that. Your ultimate purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Yes, that means being a mother at this point in your life, but once your kid graduates and go to college, part of how you steward your gifts, it's going to look different. If you build your whole identity on being a mom when your kid's 40, hopefully he's not living with you. But your identity would be gone. It would crush you. We, we too fail this test. We, we make idols out of silly things. Continually looking for someone or something to give us the satisfaction that only God can provide. And, and the point here is that I, I want us to avoid in, in our church and in our homes both deifying children and degenerating them. Don't want us to undervalue them or to overvalue them, but to rightly value them. I think one of the ways we do this is by looking to Christ as the sole source of our satisfaction. We love Jesus when we love others as an expression of our love for them. We love him when we love others in their proper place. I think we also have to ask, what does Jesus mean when he says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I think we can start by talking about what Jesus is not teaching here. And I have a list of six things that I hijacked from one of the speakers I listened to this week in preparation. Number one, Jesus is not teaching that children can be saved because of the faith of their parents. Perhaps you're here and have thought, Mom is a really, really devout Christian. And even though I don't believe, because God likes my mom so much and she goes to church enough, uh, I'm probably going to be saved too, if God even exists. That, that's a lie. No one is saved by the faith of another or by virtue of what family they are born into. Everyone in Jesus' family has been adopted as the result of turning from their sin towards God and believing in Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. Number two. This passage does not teach that all children are saved. This passage does not teach that all children are saved. 
Mark Dever comments, the language of who is saved is of metaphor, an analogy. It's the language of illustration, like a little child. The advantage that Jesus is speaking about is not about age, but about attitude. Nothing about children make them innocent or inherently saved. They too stand under Adam's curse. If this leaves us troubled about infant death, we must contemplate seriously and examine other scriptures. But we should not use texts such as this to support what we would like to believe. I do want to make a a note here. I I do think, I do believe that children that die in infancy or early childhood go to heaven, but I don't think you can make that argument from this text. It's not in this text. uh, In my mind, it's an idea of, of right doctrine, wrong text. We don't want to read into the text what we want it to say. We want to expose what it actually says and then submit to it. Number three. Jesus is not teaching that infants should be baptized. Calvin and others have wrongly held this passage up as evidence for the practice of infant baptism. However, I I like what Spurgeon says a little better. He says this. This text has not the shadow of the shade of the ghost of a connection with baptism. At the end of the day, this is a pretty dry passage. Yes, one can find baptism in the Bible and one can find infants in the Bible, but never are the two mentioned together. And while I'm thankful for our evangelical friends that practice infant baptism, I think they're wrong on this text and on their interpretation of other texts. One I think of is Acts 2, 38 and 39. It says this, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Typically, they read these verses as saying the promise is for the whole family. See, it says right there, the promise is for our children. But they don't, act, they don't equally apply that passage to those that are far off. Moreover, the teaching of the whole counsel of God is that we don't baptize the far off without a profession of faith. Nor should we baptize children who do not make a profession of faith, or anyone for that matter. The text, I think, is better understood to referring to the promise of the gospel spreading through space as it goes from one nation to the other nation to the other nation, to those that are far off. And by spreading down through time, from generation to generation, the promise of the gospel is made to all those that will by faith come to Jesus. Your children's 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 children. But the promise is not for those that have not expressed faith. My my point here is that faith is the way to Jesus, not baptism. I think that it is unloving to baptize an infant or anyone who has not repented of their sins and submitted to Jesus' lordship. I think this behavior diminishes the symbolism and the power of baptism. Love Paul's beautiful description in Romans. He writes, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? And we were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Infants do not believe. They have no saving knowledge 
of Jesus Christ, which means they ought not be baptized. All that said, I want to stress again the fact that those who practice infant baptism in their churches, such as our conservative Presbyterian friends, that they are indeed our friends. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They too believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And while we disagree on baptism, we need to have sense. We have the sense and the love to acknowledge the need to, to, yes, worship in different churches for the sake of the unity and purity of the church, but at the same time, be willing to, to shake hands over the short metaphorical fence that separates our yards. Number four, this passage does not teach us that we should have a ceremony of infant dedication. I got the Presbyterian, so I figured I'd get us too. This passage does not teach us that we should have a ceremony of infant dedication. Jesus nowhere institutes such a ceremony, and I think that it's not a good idea for us to practice rituals or ceremonies that are not directly instituted by Christ or implied by Scripture. I don't think it is. Also, again, hopefully it's clear that I love children. I think Christians are called to love children. But the Bible just simply does not categorize them as candidates for baptism or prescribe any type of dedication ceremony for them. The Bible does tell us that we should love them, evangelize them, and teach them to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their might. It's our role to carve his word onto their bones. Steward your home well. Fifth, this passage does not teach that children should be church members. One author notes, Jesus blessing a little child is not the same as a congregation of redeemed sinners giving testimony to the regeneration of a fellow redeemed sinner. Baptismal dropout rates for those that are quickly and casually baptized are astounding. Church needs to be more careful about when and who we affirm as candidates for baptism. Again, a credible profession of faith must precede baptism, but we want to be wise Sometimes it's best to wait to baptize those who are younger. For example, I'm sure all of us have heard the story of the young boy or girl who came to church every Sunday their whole life and went to a a Christian camp and was baptized at the age of 13 and then five years later does not identify with Christ at all. And then when someone comes to try and share the gospel with them, they think to themselves, I've done the Christian thing. I've plumbed the depths of Christianity. That, That gospel news, it's really not all that good. I've got it already. So they never come to Christ at all. And our flippant baptism of them actually serves as a a roadblock to their faith. We wait to baptize those that are younger in order to protect them from thinking they know Jesus when they do not or might not. So you might ask, how should we deal with young children who want to be baptized? I think we we treat it on a case-by-case basis and evaluate whether or not we can, as a congregation, Affirm a child's salvation and welcome them into membership and all that membership entails. Right? If somebody's baptized, then they are a member of the church, then they vote on stuff. Need to make sure that they're a legitimate candidate. I think a safe practice is to encourage faith and delay baptism. Uh, Jonathan Lehman over at Nine Marks illustrates the principle well when he recently wrote this I'm in a position now with my own girls the older of the two whom profess faith. Here's how that conversation can go. Daddy, am I a Christian? If you're repenting of your sins and putting your trust in Jesus, then yes, I am. If you are, then praise God. 
keep doing that. Can I get baptized? At some point. Right now, while you're young, let's just continue to learn and grow. Well, think about this more when you're older. I want you to stand on your own two feet as a follower of Jesus and not just believe these things because I do. But I'm so glad that you want to follow Jesus with me. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. There's no one better than Jesus. Notice a couple of things. First, Jonathan doesn't formally affirm her as a Christian. Instead, he gives her the criteria, repentance and faith, and makes conditional statements, if, then. Secondly, he does rejoice with her in what she believes to be the case that, that when she says she's following Jesus. That's why he responds, praise God. But again, look, he doesn't go as far as employing his parental authority to say, yes, you are a Christian. I actually, I, I don't believe that God has given that authority to any parent. Instead, I believe that authority rests solely with the local church, as we discussed a, a few weeks back when we looked at Matthew 16. I think Lehman also points out several other important points in this discussion as it relates to discussing with parents these things. Uh, it says, no one questions whether or not children can be saved. God can save at any age. To that, I think we would all say amen. The question is whether or not a church has the ability or competence to affirm a child's profession. Baptism requires two parties to make a public statement, not just one. The baptizee and the baptizer, that's the church. The baptizer, for its part, needs to be able to state with integrity, yeah, best we can tell, this person's profession of faith is valid and he or she should be identified with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit as a Christian. Insofar as children are under their parents' authority and have been designed by God to, to want to please their parents, it's difficult for a church to discern whether or not a profession of faith is legitimate, right? Sometimes uh, little boys and little girls just want to please mommy and daddy. Best we can tell, most churches who have practiced believers' baptism throughout history, uh, they didn't baptize until closer to adulthood, and so this is a recent, more Western phenomenon to baptize young children. Uh, and the problems of nominal, casual Christianity in our country cannot be overstated. I mean, the number of children who leave youth group and abandon the faith in college, it's been created in part because we've been uh, giving so many young children the assurance of salvation sooner than we should have, a false assurance. We should want to give our children the ability to, to make a public profession when they are standing on their own two feet closer to adulthood, if not as adults. We want to make sure it's a real, genuine profession of faith before we affirm someone's Christianity. I think there's more to say, but, but hopefully that gives us a good start as we talk about baptism and what the text doesn't teach. <laughs> uh, to summarize, use conditional statements, rejoice in the fruit that you see, and encourage children and parents both to, to press on, be patient, and express caution in acting prematurely. So let me recap all, all the things we talked about. The text does not teach that children are saved by the faith of their parents. It does not teach that all children are saved. It does not teach the baptism of infants. It does not teach the dedication of infants. It does not teach the membership of children. Now we might ask, what, what does it teach? And I think we learn this lesson from both Jesus' actions and his words. Jesus acts to remove any and all obstacles before those that would come to him. He welcomes with arms wide open the least and last of society. We've seen him touch and bless lepers and dead people and beggars and blind and sick and crippled. We've seen him touch the unclean and the crazy. And now we see him touch and bless children. 
Verse 16, and he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus' touch brought blessings and was a blessing. It was a tangible expression of God's unconditional love for the least of these, the weak and the poor. Jesus' actions demonstrate that he loves children. He loves the unlovely and the powerless. He loves the weak. And he wants us to love the weak too. More though, not only does he want us to love the weak, he wants us to be the weak. He explains this with his rebuke of the disciples in verses 14 and 15. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He did not say, don't hinder them because to these belong the kingdom. He said, don't hinder them because to such as these belong the kingdom. Don't hinder them, help them. Lead them to me for blessing because they represent the kind of people that will inherit the kingdom. Who are the such as these? Jesus gives the answer in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. So people that receive the kingdom are people who submit to the wise and gracious rule of God over their lives as a child receives the provision and submits to the guidance it needs from parents. That's who enters the kingdom of God. I don't want you to miss the warning here too. Jesus is saying, if you do not receive the the kingdom of God as a child, if you don't receive the kingdom as somebody that has nothing to offer, you will not enter it at all. You won't receive it at all. Children teach us how to enter the kingdom. They live by dependence on another. Likewise, we must depend on Christ entirely in order to truly live. If at any point we think that we have earned or deserve fellowship with God, we have lost the kingdom. I think Jesus illustrates this well in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He tells this parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable in Luke comes right before the story we've been looking at today. And I think because it makes a similar point has a similar message as our passage, which is only the weak enter the kingdom of God. I love this teaching of Jesus because it convicts both the religious and the irreligious. Jesus shows us that both the secular progressive person and the legalist religious person are Pharisees. The religious Pharisee says, good people are in, bad people are out, and I'm not one of the bad people, so I'm in. The irreligious secular progressive Pharisee says, The open-minded people are in. The bigoted people are out. And I'm not one of the bigoted people. The gospel, though, says this. The humble are in and the proud are out. 
The gospel is not saying that therefore humility is the virtue by someone, how, by virtue how someone enters into salvation. That's, that's not what's going on here. The humble are in by virtue of having nothing to offer. How does the tax collector go home saved and justified? Because he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Nothing to offer. Both the religious Pharisee and the secular Pharisee trust in themselves, both look down on others, and both are outside of the kingdom. Both can receive the kingdom if they become like children and cry out for God's mercy. On the cross, Jesus cried out for mercy but received none so that when you cry out for mercy, you can receive plenty. On the cross, Jesus took wrath so that you could receive mercy. He acted as your substitute and died for all the things that you have done or ever will do wrong. He died for your sin so that you don't have to. From the grave, Jesus resurrected as master over death, proving the acceptability of his sacrifice and the truth of his person and work. He lives so that you too can live by receiving him like a child. Children do picture wonderfully what it is to trust in Jesus for salvation. Any of us that have been parents or have been around children or or seen a a lot of movies, uh, you can picture the young toddler playing outside on the playground and upon skinning his knee, wells up with tears and, and hurries over to his father with arms raised out. Daddy, pick me up. And he's quickly scooped up into the father's warm and secure embrace. That's a picture of our relationship with God. We need mercy. We raise our hands. Or maybe better, an image of an unwanted child left on the stoop of an abandoned building, crying out for someone to care for her. Her life is completely dependent on the loving action of another. This is us. We are as children on a stoop crying out for someone to love us, for someone to save us. This is how we are to come to Christ. Needy, weak, dependent. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clouts, no claims. To forget this is to forget the gospel. Little child has absolutely nothing to bring and neither do you. Whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of the sheer neediness they have rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. We only receive God's grace on the basis of our neediness. Little children are model disciples because only empty hands can be filled. Friend, you can be scooped up in the Father's arms and adopted into God's family. You need only come as a child, raising the empty hands of faith, asking, pick me up. Let me receive your mercy. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Enter the kingdom of God by receiving it as a child. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is no basis on which we can recommend ourselves to you, but that despite our sinfulness, Despite our rebellion against us, you have loved us anyway. You have loved us even though we have set ourselves up as your enemies. Father, help us to repent of our self-righteousness if we think that that righteousness earns us any favor with you. It does not. 
Let us repent of our doing good if it's to earn our own salvation rather than honor you with affectionate obedience. Lord, let us repent of our wrongdoing, of our sin. Many of us have sinned even during this service in our thoughts. We come before you again and ask for mercy. Forgive us, sinners. Lord, we thank you that you are infinitely good and that you love weak people like us. Help us to receive your kingdom as your children. Amen.